Studying, as Gino said, we're studying the life of Paul uh, using various passages that describe certain events in the life of Paul. We've come to his conversion on the road to Damascus, so we're calling our study On the Goat again. Get it? Saul the Punisher is going to be described as breathing threats and murder against Christians. The word for breathing is better translated breathing in. It's describing him as if he were a wild animal, a predator, sniffing his prey from miles away. His prey were in Damascus, Syria, and he got permission to go there and slaughter them. Damascus was some 135 miles from Jerusalem. There was a large Jewish population, as evidenced by Josephus' report that 10,000 Jews were massacred there in 68 AD. The trip would take several days, probably nearly a week. Although many artists have nobly portrayed Saul as riding a horse to Damascus, he almost certainly was on foot. One scholar said, artists make terrible commentators. And that's true. If you like some of the, some of the art, I don't know anything about art uh, at all, so I don't want to show my ignorance, but um, I do know that some, some famous art is just pornography, uh, you know, in, it called famous art. But a lot of times in different eras, they would portray saints different ways and, and um, they would interpret different things. And if you're not careful, you get that stuck in your mind you know, you start to think that Mary really rode a donkey to uh, Bethlehem when there's no mention of a donkey in the story and those kinds of things. And so we have to be careful. So Paul's almost certainly on foot. Uh, it makes it seem so much more dramatic that he fell off of his horse, you know, and all that, but that probably didn't happen. Sometime during that journey, he was miraculously converted on the road to Damascus after he had an encounter with the risen, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. Now, is that the typical way a person gets saved? It may not be typical, but I want to show you tonight that it was a type. And by that I mean it was a type, a typology providing an illustration of something else. By the way, I've gotten a, this is just, can I be personal with you for a minute? Just separate from the Bible study, I've become a little bit self-conscious because somebody, the pastors that I'm online with, somebody sent a picture of me on Sunday morning in front of my perch and I was in a position like this. And one of the guys said, are you hypnotizing your iPad? And so I realized, and then somebody else sent me a picture last week. So oh, here's some pictures from Sunday morning and I'm going like this. So I realized that I'm always doing this hypnosis move, you know. I think I was, might have been... It was, I think it was John Miller, my old pastor. He used to hang his hand over his podium and twirl his ring around like this. But he would also, I think it was him or somebody else, they do this and then they do a little twist. <laughs> I don't know what that is, you know. But So anyway, if I do that tonight, just, I don't know, take a picture, I guess. So let me read the accounts. There's three of them in the book of Acts and then point out why I think Saul's conversion was a type. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, if you want to quickly navigate there while I read. Acts 9, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, uh, which is what their early name for Christians was, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? 
And then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul rose from the ground and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now that was Luke's account as it was told to him, obviously, by Saul. The next two accounts are from Saul's lips. The first was to a Jewish audience. If you want to go to Acts 22, beginning in verse 5, as also the high priest bears me witness and all the council of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Uh, The third account of what occurred on the road uh, was given to a Gentile. This is Acts 26, beginning in verse 12. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent Turn to God and do works befitting repentance. Now, as we read through, you notice slight differences in the three accounts. It's mostly because of the different audiences that are being addressed. There are also at least two significant differences. One account says that men traveling with Saul stood, while another says that they fell to the ground. There are several possible explanations, the best one being that the word translated stood can simply mean that they were fixed or stationary. They fell to the ground and they were fixed in that position for a time, unable to move. I don't want to use the word paralyzed because I I don't know that that's a proper description, but they fell to the ground and they were unable to move from that position for a time. 
Another seeming problem is that in the Acts 9 version, the men are said to have heard a voice, whereas in the Acts 22 version, it says that they heard not the voice of him who spoke. Again, there are any number of possible solutions, the best one being that they heard Jesus speaking but did not understand his words the way Saul did. Uh, they, they knew someone was speaking, but it, it made no sense to them. Now, back to what I suggested, now that we've read all the accounts, that Saul's conversion is a type. I think it's a type of the conversion of the Jews who are alive on the earth at the end of the great tribulation when Jesus Christ returns in his second coming and all Israel is saved as they look upon him whom they have pierced. I mean, we'll see that there are some uh, general similarities to the way Paul gets saved, to the way everyone gets saved, but you have to admit this is a pretty dramatic uh, event. Uh, the, the, it, actually, I mean, you might even see it as like the coming of Jesus to Paul and, and the, the light and him immediately recognizing Jesus Christ. And not to get too far ahead, but this is exactly what happens at the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. It says, as we'll see in a minute, all Israel will be saved. They see him whom they have pierced and they immediately recognize Jesus Christ. There's no evangelism involved. They know that it's Jesus and that he is their savior. And so uh, this is certainly uh, not the usual conversion. And you're going to get into trouble if you teach it from the point of view of what can I learn about how people get saved by Paul. The answer is some things are similar, as we'll see, but many things are typical. Um, Another thing, the emphasis in all the accounts in Saul's conversion is on the light. Acts 9.3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Acts 22.6, now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. Verse 11, and since I could not see for the glory of that light being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Acts 26.13, at midday along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. By the way, it's interesting in the, uh, in the Acts uh, 22 account, I think it is, Paul says, uh, you realize that Paul, though he was blind, he wasn't in a darkness. He, he was blind because the light was too great for him. And so he, it was kind of a white blindness, you might see. It was, it was not a darkness. It was a light that he was blind in. Now, this light was much, much more than just a bright light. It is, in the Bible, the radiance of God's glory. Frequent biblical texts speak of God's glory in terms of light uh, because that can minister to us. We can kind of get a handle on that. Psalm 76, 4 says, you are resplendent with light, more majestic than mountains, rich with game. Psalm 104, verse 2, he wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. 1 Timothy 6, 16 says, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. I love that passage in the Revelation that talks about that. Well, there really there's no moon, there's no sun, and there's no moon because they, we have no need of it in eternity because the Lord Himself is the light of that place. And so, when Saul was confronted on the road to Damascus, he saw the risen, glorified Lord, and the light was the light of His revealed glory. 
Saul was also told that he would become a kind of light. Acts 26, 17, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Saul was subjected to a temporary blindness. I said it was a light blindness, but still he was blind. And that might be a key fact that points to a typology as well. And so recapping, Saul saw the light of the glory of the risen Lord and was saved. He suffered a temporary blindness before bringing the light of the gospel to the world. I've already given you the answer to this, but who else in the scriptures is described as suffering from temporary blindness? Well, it's the nation of Israel. We just studied through the book of Romans not long ago. And there you saw Paul explain what God is doing with that nation in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Uh, and and uh, Paul would say concerning Israel in Romans eleven seven, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, meaning Christians, and the rest were blinded. Romans eleven twenty five and 6, for I did not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and then all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob." I have to believe that Paul was thinking about his own conversion and, and, and when he wrote that and was thinking how cool God is to give him the typology and to show him in his own conversion as a Jew what was going to happen to his people. When will Israel's blindness be removed and all Israel be saved? It says there in Romans, when the deliverer comes, uh, that's the second coming of Jesus Christ, described by Zechariah in 12.10, where he says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Again, this is the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the great tribulation. Numerous passages describe Jesus' glory at his second coming. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says he will destroy his enemies by the brightness of his coming. So he's going to come in this amazing light uh, and the Jews will know exactly who he is. He's not going to have to have a harvest crusade or uh, send people door to door. The Jews who are alive at the end of the great tribulation will look upon Jesus Christ and immediately recognize him as their Lord. Jesus then will return in his glory in a brightness exceeding the sun and all previously blinded Israel will be saved. Like Saul on the road to Damascus was spiritually blind to Jesus being the Messiah and his savior until Jesus appeared in his glory to reveal himself. Now his temporary physical blindness after meeting the Lord was to emphasize the spiritual blindness he had been operating under and that the Jews he would preach the gospel to would still be walking in. He could therefore better identify with the many Old Testament scriptures describing Israel's end time blindness. 
he would receive his sight and go on to be a light to the Jews. He was, in a sense, typical of the light Jesus will be to Israel at his return when they are saved. He was sort of a first light. One of the authors said he was like the first fruits of of the light, Uh, but that gets too, you mix too many metaphors. Saul's conversion, miraculous and unique, is typical then of the conversion of all the surviving Jews at the end of the Great Tribulation, at the second coming, of Jesus when he establishes his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. Now, just because Saul saw the risen Christ, it doesn't mean there was nothing typical about his conversion that is typical of any conversion. First of all, like all men and women everywhere, he was a sinner in need of salvation. He would later describe himself as the chief of sinners. Uh, he, He liked to consider himself sinning more than anybody else. But he stood as an example that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so Paul, who was the apostle who more than any preached the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ says, God has to be a God of grace because I was such a terrible sinner. Uh, It was worse because I did it out of, uh, because in a sense of thinking I was righteous uh, and I persecuted the church and I killed Christians and I murdered them and all, but God saved me. Second, every conversion is a miracle. It wasn't the light that shone around Saul that transformed him, but the light that shone within. Second Corinthians 4, 4 and 6 say, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, God said, let light shine out of darkness. He made his light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, was, Paul, was Saul's conversion miraculous? Absolutely. Was your conversion miraculous? You betcha. Uh, it, it absolutely was. Uh, the light of God came into your heart and life, and it was a, it was a miracle. Third, his salvation experience was all of grace, as we've already mentioned, not by any works of righteousness, which he had done. And fourth, a radical transformation took place as the persecutor and punisher of the church became the great preacher of Jesus Christ. And so while we're saying that it is a very obviously a type of this end times conversion of Israel as a nation... Paul was still an individual like you and I who got saved and had these things in common. Uh, once you get into this, it helps you a little bit later in uh, Acts with a couple of incidents in the life of the Apostle Paul. There's one where he takes a vow, uh, essentially a, a Nazarite kind of vow, and, and uh, he ends up getting arrested and carried away, and a lot of commentators say that he had you know, he was wrong because he fell back into Judaism and he should have never done that. But if you study the passage, you find out that it has parallels to the life of Ezekiel. Uh, and, um, and again, Paul, what Paul is doing, uh, whether he knew it or not, is a typology of some things. So um, better off not criticizing these guys for what they did in the first century that you have no idea what was going on because we're going to see them in heaven and they're going to be upset with you if you criticize them. You know, going to say, hey, you know, on uh, September 5th, you know, you said that I was wrong and you just, you missed the whole insight, Gene, you know, and stuff. So we want to be careful in our criticisms of the saints that are, uh, have gone before us. Now, 
Uh, something Jesus said to Saul should be discussed before we close. Jesus said to Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. The goad, as you know, is a long stick. It would be sharpened on one end. Farmers would use it to prod their ox teams in the right direction. It, it essentially looked like a spear, but it didn't have a spearhead. It was just a stick that you would whittle. Everybody would have their own in terms of, you know, balance and shape and what they liked, and they would just sharpen it at one end, and they would prod uh, or goad the ox with it. It has come, therefore, to mean in our culture something that encourages or drives. It means a stimulus. And so two things at least suggest themselves. First, we see here that God was at work encouraging and driving and stimulating Saul to receive Jesus Christ. Stephen's death as a martyr That was a goad as Saul saw Stephen's angelic face and heard his prayer for the Lord to forgive those who were killing him. That's a very hard thing to kick against. Now, Paul did. He became enraged and breathing threats against the church. He was murdering Christians and uh, imprisoning Christians and all, but uh, that kind of thing, uh, you know, is hard to get over. And the deaths of all the other saints that Paul persecuted who likewise Uh, uh, died in grace as martyrs. They were goads. It didn't seem, we talked about this last week, didn't seem like they were having much of an effect because Paul was getting worse, but in his heart, uh, something was going on. In dramatic and undramatic ways, God is always at work goading men to Christ. Uh, You know, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so he is about the business of trying to draw all men to himself uh, and to reveal his grace to them. Uh, One of the ministries of God, the Holy Spirit, in the world is to uh, bring men to Christ, and we could say even to goad men to Christ. That means that you, if you're a believer... Once you become a believer, you are a goad to non-believers. They should see your angelic face as you endure troubles, and they should hear you speak as the oracle of God in your compassion for them. Now, don't get me wrong. Stephen and the others were martyred, and there's a special grace that comes uh, upon you uh, to endure that kind of thing. You and I sit here and say, I don't think I could, you know, shine and and pray prayers of forgiveness while I was being stoned to death. Well, you're not being stoned to death, and if you were, God would give you grace because he's promised that. Uh, But even even short of that, in our own smaller situations, whether we're being persecuted or not, whether we're just existing, uh, you are a goad to non-believers because uh, of, of your belief in Jesus Christ, and God wants to use you in that way. Uh, Second, it's all too possible for you as a believer to disobey God. As a disciple, you're described as yoked together with the Lord. If you're not walking in obedience to him, he needs to goad you. If you kick against God's goads, you hurt yourself. You ever think about that? You, You don't hurt the farmer. The farmer didn't go, oh, man, that hurts every time you're kicking against that sharp instrument. And so when an ox kicks against the goads, he's only hurting himself. We ought to discover God's ways for our lives and then follow them. If we refuse, then it will bring nothing but hurt into our lives and sometimes, sadly, into the lives of others as well. Saul's conversion was really spectacular, but it was no more miraculous than yours or anyone else's. 
God had something more to communicate through Saul to Israel and to us, that's all. It wasn't that Saul was so important that Jesus had to personally appear to him in order to ensure his salvation. And Saul was to become an apostle with a capital A. That too meant that he must see with his own eyes the risen Lord. It was a requirement of apostleship. It's one of the reasons why there are no apostles today. Sometimes people, there's certain congregations or denominations where they uh, have apostles. Well, there are no apostles with the, in the capital A sense that there were in the first century because uh, Peter, uh, you know, in the book of Acts, he said, look, we have to replace Judas uh, who, you know, went to perdition and uh, here's some of the requirements of being an apostle in that sense. And one of them was that they had seen the risen Lord. Uh, and so Paul uh, was an apostle in that sense. He had seen the risen Lord. I suppose... Uh, if you run into somebody who says that they're an apostle, ask them if they've seen the risen Lord. If they say no, then tell them that they need to use a lowercase a, uh, you know, next to their name, or get away from them uh, because they probably haven't seen the risen Lord. They've seen someone, uh, but not the risen Lord. Anyway, be encouraged. You might even look back on your encounter with Jesus when you got saved. See if there are any types that have held true to your walk with him thus far, some things that he promised you or that uh, he's done for you. Amen?